This is the Fixed Plasm Podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration. And I'm Ralph. In the next few episodes, I'm mostly going to talk about cities. There will be uh, fantasy city fiction, contemporary fiction, and future cities, and even a bit of non-fiction. But I'm going to start with the book that really turned me on to fantasy cities, which is M. John Harrison's Viriconium. I'm going to talk a bit about the book itself in the synopsis, but before then, I wanted to talk about the context. Harrison is part of the new wave of British speculative fiction, which also includes names like J.G. Ballard, Christopher Priest, Robert Holstock, Michael Moorcock. Now, Moorcock name-checks a number of these authors in his Wizardry and World Romance essays. The explicit Moorcock-Harrison link is New Worlds magazine that Moorcock first edited in 1964. This was a rebirth of the magazine on the initiative of Moorcock and Ballard for publishing experimental fiction. And Harrison was literary editor from 68 to 75. And there's also a Moorcock-Harrison connection in fiction. For one, uh, Harrison wrote three short stories concerning Moorcock's Jerry Cornelius. Then there's also the portrayal of the reborn men in the pastel city, who, rightly or wrongly, I picture as tall and long-haired and exotic armour, about Melna Benin. And 1971's The Pastel City comes just after Michael Moorcock's Hawkmoon sequence, the Runestaff sequence, and some Elric short stories, but just before the actual Elric novels and before Coram. Harrison's afternoon cultures are also reminiscent of Moorcock's tragic millennium. So again, it's got this sort of, um, not necessarily a dying earth, but twilight of humanity type of feel to it. Um, Obviously, both of these are predated by Jack Vance's dying earth. But the timings are what I want to pay attention to. Um, So there's a comment in the Wikipedia page uh, that states... The decadence Harrison describes is reminiscent of Michael Moorcock's vision of the far future in The End of All Songs, which is true, it is, but it's actually round the other way. Because Moorcock's Dances at the End of Time books were all published after The Pastel City from uh, 72 to 76, although time, as we shall see, is a mutable concept in Viraconium. So I don't know what correspondence happened between Harrison and Moorcock, um, but you, know, you can believe that being part of the same literary movement and writing stories about the other's protagonists, they must have you know, known each other, corresponded, they, they worked, both worked on new worlds. So there could have been uh, you know, this conversation and cross-pollination before the ideas entered print. So maybe Harrison's depiction of the reborn men is some good-natured ribbing of Moorcock and his eternal champion. Most importantly, though, uh, as I said before, both are contemporary with J.G. Ballard, and the influence of Ballard's weird disaster fiction in the 60s, you know, the likes of The Drowned World, uh, The Drought, also called The Burning World, I think, that's the earlier title, and uh, The Crystal World, you know, you need to acknowledge these. So that's what Viraconium feels like to me. It's a mashup of Moorcock's anti-Tolkien fantasy that's kind of veers towards the pulp, but still still sort of very energetic. And also and also Ballard's meditations on gloom and decay. And later on it even weaves in some Christopher Priest like fragmented perspectives and dreamy cosmology. And if that's not a recommendation, I don't know what is. As usual, I'm gonna do a synopsis, then talk about themes and finally there'll be a role playing bit. Here we go. My copy of Viraconium includes the three novels and the short stories from Viraconium Nights, that's Nights with an N. The collected volume alternates short stories with the trilogy to give a, a sense of natural progression, and, and certainly the order of the stories makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to stick with that sequence and consider three distinct acts around the three novels. The first act is the most straightforward plot-wise. It begins with a short story, Viraconium Nights, that's nights with a K, which gives us this first glimpse of Viraconium as this grimy, lawless place ruled by gangs. From the opening passage and the the blurb on the back, I'll quote, In Viraconium, the aristocratic thugs whistle to one another all night long as they go about their deadly games. If you wake suddenly, you might hear footsteps running or an urgent sigh. After a minute or two, the whistles move away in the direction of the tin market or the Margaritstrasse. The next day, some lordling is discovered in the gutter with his throat cut. Who can tell fantasy from reality, magic from illusion? Hero from villain, man from monster, in Viraconium. So in the first story, Viraconium Knights, Mammy Vooley, a sort of underworld boss, 
contracts Ignace Retz to kill Oscar B. Prattel, the champion of the Locust Clan. When he instead just maims and hamstrings Prattel, she banishes him, denying him a weapon with which to defend himself. He maims her before fleeing, and then it's a night of running from seemingly every other gang, all of whom communicate with coded whistles. He finds refuge in the apartment of a man who keeps a mechanical eagle, and who shows him a tapestry of another city, a less grim and more shining version of Viraconium. And this upsets him more than anything else, and he tries to rip the old man off, but he's repelled by the metal eagle. On the street once more, he finds a curious body in a costume that includes a rubber trout mask, and that's presumably a reference to Captain Beefheart. This opening introduces a lot of the repeating themes and motifs that carry on in the rest of the stories. So we have um, mechanical, metallic robot birds, uh, the power knives, these uh, remnants of the afternoon cultures that are you know, the vibroblades or energy weapons, the various factions in the city that people are allied to, uh, the names of places like uh, the Rue Serpil and the um, the Margaretstrasse and the Bistro Californium. Then little details like uh, sugar and enemies, anemones, yes, pronounce that properly. And of course there's this trout mask, which I mentioned because it reappears in the third novel. Okay, on then to The Pastel City from 1971, which, like Viraconium Nights, is pretty straightforward. It has a, a Moorcock feel to it. This is an empire nearing its end. It uses the technology of the afternoon cultures, like airboats and power knives, though it doesn't understand how to maintain them. They're consumables and magical artefacts of an earlier age. There's a threat from the north, a human army that's poised to destroy the city. And our protagonist is self-consciously like an eternal champion. He's called Lord Tegius Chromis, and he's the best swordsman in the empire, apparently, though he considers himself a better poet. And he lives in this isolated tower where he plays miserable instruments until an airship crashes nearby and brings news of the war to him and a request to aid his queen, Methvet Neon. From there, we assemble a group of characters, including Tomb the Dwarf, an inventor who knocks about in a powered suit with a massive axe. And off all these characters go to meet Celio, the mysterious maker of metal birds, who's quite possibly this unnamed old man from the first book, although there's a reason why that might be. Um, Celia gives them the plot dump that a human army has awakened these unstoppable brain-stealing robots who were remnants from the afternoon cultures. They finally stop the robots by stopping this coordinating electronic computer brain uh, deep in the rust desert. And in doing so, they awaken the reborn men who are all these physically perfect, long-haired, wearing exotic armour, a bit like Malibonians, as, as I mentioned earlier. Now, this all sounds pretty pulpy stuff, but there is a bit of a nuance. The reborn men have an interesting relationship with time. They're quite uh, introspective as a result. Uh, no doubt this comes from the fact that they can be regrown from just a, a brain or an intact brainstem, regrown in a tank. So there's this previous afternoon culture biotech of these immortal warriors who simply, when they fell, they would just be harvested and then regrown. So they're functionally immortal. And of course, the other thing that sets it apart is it's, it's deliciously written. Wonderful, wonderful prose throughout. Moving on, the last short story in what I consider the first act is Lords of Misrule. And it's notable for a couple of things. Firstly, it's narrated by Lord Cromus. As the narrator, he actually uses an alternate spelling of Viraconium, uh, spelling it uh, Uroconium. And I think, actually, this, this alternative spelling is... Um, they were both applied to the Roman settlement that became Roxter. That matters because, in later stories, the city's name changes a few times. So what Chromis is doing is he's visiting a farm that's under threat from an unspecified advancing army, some invading force of some sort. And what you get is an interesting contrast in rural life versus um, what's mostly an urban-focused set of stories. The last thing that's interesting is the appearance of the Mary Lud, which is a costume mask or hobby horse um, fashioned from a horse's skull. And this will make a repeat appearance more than once throughout the rest of the stories. So that's the first act. Now, the, the second act is centred on the novel A Storm of Wings. 
Um, just before it, in sequence, comes the short story Strange Great Sins, which is a nice little story there. And then afterwards, uh, it's The Dancer from the Dance, The Luck in the Head, and The Larmian Lord Chromis. That last story is placed after A Storm of Wings, in which Chromis is supposedly long dead. So it's a, a retrospective of the fantasy elements of Vericonium before the series transitions to a, a much more occult, Dickensian almost, magical realism setting. This sequence in the whole is, it is sort of ostensibly, again, the more of the high fantasy and even more convoluted and uh, complex. I'm mostly going to talk about A Storm of Wings. Um, 80 years after the first book, the reborn men have integrated into Viriconium society. And once again, there's a threat to the city. So it's very much retreading the format of the first book. You know, high fantasy with archetypal characters. You've got Seller the Birdmaster reprising his role to dispensing visions of the doom to come. Lord Chromis is dead, as I mentioned just now, uh, but Tomb the Dwarf is here along with his you know, massive axe and robotic armour. And there's two new characters. One is Alstath Fulthor, the most human of the reborn men. A quote from the book. He was a tall man as are all the reborn, and a thin one, clad in tunic and trousers of black satin, the contorted yellow crest or ideograph of his house writhing over his breast. On his feet were the curious flimsy shoes his race wears, in preference to boots, and at his waist hung a short false knife or barn, dug up along with its ancient ceramic scabbard from some desert. His long coarse yellow hair was tangled and damp, and sweat filmed his prominent bird-like features. In the more foolish and fashionable salons of Viraconium, he was held to be the most human of the reborn, but this was a silly expression, not to say a meaningless one, and if there was anything more or less human in his face now, it was only despair. The other character is called Galen Hornrak, and he's this bravo from the Low City who detects the coming sign of the locust, and shortly thereafter encounters and kills an enormous insect. So what happens is Tomb, Fulther and Hornrak converge on the high city from different directions and Methvetnian and Seller meet with them and they learn basically that they are under threat from giant locusts invading from the moon. Well, well, they're not actually from the moon. They're a spacefaring alien race who can travel vast distances through the interstices of space and time. Though once caught in Earth's gravity, they'd lose that power and are forced to breathe and invent great devices to effectively convert our atmosphere into something they can survive in. Here's a quote. But if the insects had first begun to change the earth at this spot, so it had begun to change them, and matter's accommodating plasticity had turned suddenly into a trap. Gravity had imprisoned them. Here they had first felt its pull and lost the power of extra atmospheric flight. It had suddenly become necessary for them to breathe, yet they could not breathe air and must invent some substitute. Here they had built the chugging machinery to disseminate it. It never worked very well. Fluids had been unknown to them during their frigid millennial migration through the barren spaces. Here they had first filled their tissues with them as a buffer against the poisons of earth. Here they had put on their breathing masks and built their weapons, seeking themselves as beleaguered, unwilling colonists, Victims of a cosmic accident, which they were. Here the human umwelt had first penetrated their strange nervous systems, working a madness on them so they could not understand what they saw or felt, and began to die of a new disease. I've not long finished the good friends of Jackson Elias's uh, take on At the Mountain of Madness, so this sounds particularly familiar, obviously. Okay, so these aliens... These locusts have been attracted to Earth in the first instance by the aeronaut Benedict Pouslanley, who flew to the moon in an airship a hundred years ago, became trapped in alien technology, which turned him into a broadcast beacon for the radio transmissions of alien races throughout the universe. And this has turned him into something vast and bloated and other than human when he materialises as a ghost in front of the protagonist to give them a massive plot dump. So the insects are building this city, which will be disastrous for everyone else, um, whether this is disastrous because they are changing the fabric of reality or because they're more simply changing Earth's atmosphere, it's not sure. 
either way it's a disaster, and eventually the weird city superimposes itself over Viriconium. The city dissolves and reforms, leading to this wonderful passage. Leaving the palace for the city was like entering a dark crystal, especially at night under the white pulpy spectre of the moon. The shape of things became irregular, refracted. Sudden astonishing mirages swallowed the pastel towers or engulfed the denizens of the streets beneath them. It was as if Viriconium, the physical city that is, the millennial artefact which sums up a thousand dead cultures, had suffered some sort of psychic storm and forgotten itself. Its very molecules seemed to be creeping apart. As you walk, the dwarf tried to explain after a single clandestine excursion to the artist's quarter, the streets create themselves around you. When you have passed, everything slips immediately back into chaos again. And even the citizens themselves have been transformed by the sign of the locust, first behaviourably, and then physically as their human features merge with insectile ones. It seems to be that the concept of insects, as broadcast from the moon by Benedict Pausmanley, um, with either, either consciously or inadvertently, these are changing reality. They are stamping the sign of the locust on the city and both the city and the citizens are vulnerable to this transforming force. So this is where we first properly see the subjectivity of Viriconium and its ability to be reshaped by the observer. In fact, this subjectivity pervades the various characters as well. And I mentioned the preoccupation of the reborn men with time. At the end of the novel, the Queen muses how they'd hoped that the reborn men would benefit Vericonium, but instead they were too absorbed with questions around their own existence. They're too introspective to be properly integrated with the citizenry. Then there's the Queen, who, who isn't this point of view character, but she gifts Lord Cromis' sword and mail to Hornrack as a reward for alerting her about the sign of the locust. And as the reader, we wonder why she would do this. Chromis was her beloved champion and she's given the Sword of the Empire's best fencer to some random from the Low City. Hornrack is insistent that he's not Chromis, despite this inexplicable gift, uh, and he resents being asked to wear the sword and mail. But I have to wonder, is it possible that he is actually some version of Chromis and he's either forgetful or in denial that he has this identity? I mean, Chromis is dead, but all of his contemporaries are still alive. They're all functionally immortal, it seems. And at the end of the novel, we witness the Queen in this quote. In the evenings, Queen Jane, Methodniana Viriconium, sits in the side chamber or cell she uses as a library and drawing room, sometimes meditating the loss, which is one of many in her life, a world trying to remember itself. Surrounded by her sheets of music and delicate little corals, she has the wry but subtle calm of an ageing danseuse, keeps in a rosewood chest with copper-reinforcing bands a gourd-shaped musical instrument from the deep east, hears the past in every passing footstep, and wonders often what became of the sword and the mail and the assassin she gave them to. I had hoped for so much from the reborn, she confides to her new adviser, an old man who is so very rarely seen in public. We might have rebuilt our culture yet they were perhaps too concerned with their own salvation to teach us, and always too uncomplicated for their delicate nerves. It's kind of at the end, at this ending, it seems the city is in a, in a stasis almost. Now the intervening short stories afterwards give us glimpses into the smaller business of the various characters, and of those, the luck in the head is worth a bit of analysis. And in this story, a writer called Chrome dreams of a woman in a locust mask, compelling him to assassinate Mami Vuli. He seeks her out and is given a power knife which has been dug up from an underground cache decades old. And the reason given is Mami wants to change the name of the city. And the inference is that this locust woman and Mami Vuli represent conflicting realities. And as we've just seen, realities can invade one another and the city itself can be reshaped by strong wills. So finally, in the third act, we have the novel in Viriconium and the short story, A Young Man's Journey to Viriconium. This is a marked shift away from the previous stories. The high fantasy secondary world has been replaced by a, a low fantasy, almost primary world setting. It's really uh, magical realism, I guess. Towards the end of the book, it becomes explicitly occult fiction. 
Ages ago, I talked about Harrison's book, The Course of the Heart, and his short story in the Tarot Tales anthology, and this is very much the same feel. In keeping with the earlier comments about the mutability of the city, we have this passage early on in, in, in Viriconium. The plague is difficult to describe. It had become some months before. It was not a plague in the ordinary sense of the word. It was a kind of thinness, a transparency. Within it, people aged quickly or succumbed to debilitating illnesses. Thysis, influenza, galloping consumption. The very buildings fell apart and began to look unkempt, ill-kept. Businesses failed. All projects dragged out indefinitely and in the end came to nothing. This is, I guess, about 300 years after the previous stories and has an almost Dickensian feel to it. There are still little hints that we're in the same world. For example, at one point, our point of view character regards a painting of some warriors in meal-coloured cloaks. And in the short stories earlier, we get to more than once it's mentioned these warriors uh, passing through some town wearing meal-coloured cloaks as the fashion. But clearly, this has moved on from the medieval high fantasy of the earlier books. And weapons are no longer openly worn for the most part, although Ashlyme, our point of view character, as mentioned, has the right to wear a sword, although he just doesn't, and his sword's in a cupboard somewhere, he's forgotten it. So it's clearly not important for people to go about armed. So this plot involves Ashlyme, a painter, who's trying to help the artist Aldsley King escape her current situation, and she's dying of the plague in, a, in an unspecified way, and she's isolated from the artist in the city, in the high city. With the help of his friend, the astronomer Emmett Buffo, Ashline concocts a plan to move Audsley King to his studio where she would return to do the artistic work she's currently unable to do and thus recuperate this idea that what she is lacking, the ill that she's suffering, is a malaise of um, having an artistic outlet. Now, at the same time, Ashline has come into the orbit of the Grand Cairo, a grotesque dwarf and a sort of Lynchian character who is paranoid about another set of grotesque characters, the Barclay brothers, a pair of louts who seem to mill about the city eating fast food, drinking and generally behaving badly. And somehow, by their influence, they are bringing in detritus from our world, you know, like um, takeaway cartons and other rubbish. This suggestion that they are actually bringing in our mundane reality into Vericonium. So early on, to achieve Ashlyme's ideas about helping Audsley King, this plan is concocted involving Buffo and Ashlyme in disguise. He's in a trout mask, his friend Buffo in a horse mask echoing the Mary Lewid. And this is kind of a farcical, ridiculous scene. At the same time, it ends in tragedy, and it just flips in a moment from being ridiculous where their their schemes fail they they are discovered by the household and they get into a fight with some locals and then the grand cairo gets involved and suddenly he just out and out murders somebody simply for being insulted it seems so the story goes on like this and, and it generally uh we generally follow ashline around as he tries more or less in vain to help Orsley King coming into the orbit of the other artists in the high city, um, displaying his opinions on art and uh, and the fact that some people have sold out. Possibly he's um, dismaying the city itself as having sold out. The book's only about five chapters long, and each chapter is titled with the fictional tarot card, and the five-card reading is explained in the last chapter. Here, we learn that the Barley Brothers, the Supposedly true masters of the city are possibly gods fallen to earth and in falling they've been corrupted into the current bad behaviour that they exhibit and this corruption comes from the city itself. Uh, I assume it's a, it's a Gnostic reference. It's hinted uh, in a couple of throwaway lines that they are the, the last two members of a time-travelling insect race who the, the rest of whom have travelled back in time to exist in a, in a more um, amiable earlier age but the brothers were left behind owing to some uh, betrayal or indiscretion they committed at their they committed um, with their race so obviously this chapter you know turns very quickly from magical realism to actual occult and then towards the the high fantasy of earlier so there's a hint that we're going backwards to the former glory of Viriconium. 
it, it more or less stops there. Most of this book is a drama rather than a fantasy, and Viriconium is degenerating and moving towards our world. And that brings us to the very last story, which is A Young Man's Journey to Viriconium, in which uh, it's learned that people from our world can access Viriconium, although the pathway is different for each traveller. The narrator tells us that there's a path into Viriconium through the mirror in the toilets in a cafe in Huddlesfield. We get a couple of conflicting accounts of travellers who've been to Viriconium and returned. Some speculation about Viriconium comes from the narrator's conversations with his neighbour. Uh, like this, the reason for so many flies at the time of year. Quote, Two explanations are commonly offered for this, he said. In the first, we are asked to imagine a certain sights in the world, a crack in the concrete in Chicago or New Delhi, a twist in the air in an empty suburb of Prague, a clotted milk bottle and a Bradford tip, from which all flies issue in a constant stream, a smoke exhaled from some appalling fundamental level of things. This is what people are asking, though they do not usually know it when they say exasperatedly, where are all these flies coming from? Such locations are like holes in the side of a new house where insulation has been pumped in, something left over from the constructional phase of the world. This is an adequate, even an appealing model of the process, but it is not modern, and I prefer the alternative in which it is assumed that as Viriconium grinds past us, dragging its enormous bulk against the bulk of the world, the energy generated is expressed in the form of these insects, which are like the sparks shooting out from between two huge flywheels that have momentarily brushed each other. So that's the Viriconium cycle. It starts as a fairly literal piece of pulpy high fantasy, and, it, and as it progresses, we realise how much of the city is subjective and how time is largely irrelevant, and Viriconium gradually degenerates and becomes less magical and more like our real world until it is simply adjacent to our world as a kind of dream, a fantasy. And with that, it's probably time to talk about some themes. So first I want to talk about artists and other visionaries. Artists dominate the third story in Viriconium, uh, but they're present throughout the, throughout the stories. Um, Lord Tegeus Chromis is, uh, you know, the greatest swordsman that lived, but he considers himself a better poet than a warrior. Um, there's uh, Chrome, the uh, the protagonist in The Lock in the Head, is a writer. Um, and then we have um, uh, the old man from Viriconium Nights who shows Ignace Rett, the alternative world in a tapestry. Um, and of course we have other visionaries like uh, Tomb is an inventor and um, Benedict Postmanley, the aeronaut, is, is not an artist but a visionary. All these people are curious and insightful and I think there's um, a couple of things it implies about these characters. The first one is that they all have a, this desire to bring to light their perspective of the world through whatever medium that they can work. And the second one is it also implies some sort of life experience to get this far. Uh, so this basically sets the character on their path from where they came from, where they're going to, whether they're uh, a visionary inventor or an artist or something else. Imagine in your next game, the GM tells you that you're all playing artists. And the first thing they ask you is, what is the thing your character knows exists, but is otherwise obscure to the wider world? And how do you plan to bring it into the light? And this question works for artists, scientists, explorers, adventurers, historians. Um, the first question is a potential world-building tag as well. Uh, and then the follow-up question, how do you plan to bring it into the light? Uh, it's all about plans and trajectories. And from there, you could have some other obvious questions, like uh, how did you come to the conclusion that the thing exists? By thing, it could be a, a work of art you need to express, or, or the dark side of the moon that you need to explore, or the secrets of pre-human kings, or something else. And that gives you your life experience up till now. So that's three simple questions. One about the world, one about the plans, and one about background. That sounds pretty good. And in the context of Vericonium, these artists are doubly important, since there is no objective truth, and it seems the very streets are shaped by the observer. That sounds a lot to me like authorial control baked into character creation, and into the game setting. So staying with this idea of a subjective and mutable world, the second theme I want to discuss is symbols and foreshadowing. This can be literal symbols like the sign of the locust, 
or it can be repeating images for example the sugared anemones or, or the hobby horse or metal birds or energy knives and Harrison did have other forms of ancient technology like the airboats but there's one enduring image which is that of the power knife it's a, a weapon that seems to leak poisonous moats it'll sever limbs before the the victim can feel it it'll burn and poison the bearer and sometimes it'll explode or fizzle out it's almost as if this is a, a motif for everything that's bad about the lost culture or, or bad about the, the opportunistic use of that lost technology. It's something you can't use safely and it does horrible things, but it's also a status symbol to be treasured and cashed away and um, bequeathed in extreme circumstances like a high-profile assassination, for example. Now, those are physical objects and stylistic motifs. Other symbols, like the sign of the locust, are interesting because they tap into the working metaphysics. The sign obviously serves to foreshadow events to come, but of course they originate as psychic broadcasts from the moon, which then directly shake the city and its citizens. It's particularly potent in Vericonium, thanks to the city's subjective nature, of course. And... Um, just an aside, this idea of a psychic message reverberating through time and space was, was used in the Doctor Who reboot with Bad Wolf, first series with uh, Christopher Eccleston as the Doctor uh, and Billy Piper as Rose Tyler. Now that's a cautionary tale in itself, uh, that as soon as you reveal the message you risk it falling flat, which it really did there. Such a letdown in the series climax. Anyway. The other symbols that occur repeatedly are the place names themselves. Now, these recurrent names, and, and maybe the characters too, are the constants that mean there is a Vericonium. So, we know there is a high and low city, there is a, a Rus appeal in the Bistro Californium and Proton Way. There's no geography to speak of, but still we know where we are thanks to landmarks. And this puts me in mind of Return to Oz. Uh, you know, the yellow brick road is all torn up, but it's it's still the yellow brick road, and you know that this is still Oz. Next, I want to talk about time, which for the reborn men, as previously mentioned, is spelled with a capital T. It's Queen Methpitneon's regret that the reborn men did not usher in a new age of intellectual prosperity as it recaptured the advances of the afternoon cultures. Instead, the reborn men became brooding and introspective with some fatalistic sense that they were trapped by time. The more I think about the reborn men, the more they look like some good-natured ribbing by Harrison of his new wave chum Moorcock. Maybe that's true, maybe not. But anyway, as previously discussed in the synopsis, the three main books constitute three points in time. The Pastel City happens at a time of crisis in the far future, and the evening of the human civilization on Earth. A Storm of Wings comes 80 years after that, and then Invericonium is about three centuries, roughly, after the second. So, Ron Edwards, in his book Sorcerer and Sword, which is the first supplement for Sorcerer, calls the sequence a mutant future, although he only mentions the first book in the short stories. Into this he also lumps Vance's Dying Earth, um, Kelwin by Neil Barrett Jr., and Withering by David Jarrett, um, not all of which I've read. I assume Edwards means far future sword and sorcery, and I'll trust that the above are representative. And the obvious omissions are Moorcock's Hawkmoon and Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun. I don't really care for this moniker Mutant Future. It suggests a post-atomic collapse into barbarism, which which isn't what we have here. Vericonium and uh, Moorcock's Tragic Millennium and the various dying Earths are more like the Hyborian Age. It's the, you know, the age of the gods has passed, but there are still glittering cities in remnant high magical technology. Um, I think it's better called Sword and Future, you know, a bit like Sword and Planet, but a future sword and sorcery society. Anyway, the, the first two novels fit this format, but then we jump forward centuries into the third novel, and it's clear that we're jumping towards some equivalent to the 20th century that threatens at points to degenerate into our own 20th century. Now, you could argue that time is cyclical, um, so supposedly... The, uh, the Pastel City is sometime well into our future, and yet we are moving towards the 20th century. Really, though, time's irrelevant. You know, the, the constants like the Russo Peel and the Bistro Californium and Power Knives and Sugar and Enemies exist in proximity to one another and in four dimensions, and they attract our protagonists to them. So if the setting is mutable, not only in three dimensions, but also four, 
This releases all kinds of possibilities with visiting pasts and futures, living multiple lives simultaneously, playing avatars in multiple timelines. Maybe though we should save that for a future Jerry Cornelius episode, because it's full of that. Okay, for the last theme I want to talk about is the city itself. And we've already mentioned how the city is subjective and not bound by time and space. On top of this, if there's an overriding theme that runs through the British new wave of SF, it's the sense of apocalyptic decay. I said there's almost a kind of Ballardian doom about Vericonium, which is why it appeals so strongly to me. But if we look to the more mainstream fantasy of the new wave, i.e. Moorcock, we see plenty of that sentiment there as well. As mentioned earlier, Hawkmoon's Tragic Millennium is a post-apocalyptic future fantasy where Grand Bretagne represents a, uh, a deviant and decadent society. And this resonates with Moorcock's more famous evil empire, Elric's Melnabone, which is a bloated, decaying state struggling for relevance in the Young Kingdoms. And of course, the whole Elric cycle is rushing towards its own apocalypse, with Elric blowing the horn of fate and ushering in the New Age. Question here is, why are decaying empires with their massive, sprawling cities so appealing? Here's a few thoughts. The first one is, these are empires at the evening of their existence, literally in Viriconium's case where the city looks to the glorious past of the afternoon cultures. And a consequence of being old is the accretion of customs, architectures, sects, magical practice, bureaucracy, festivals, you know, and other ephemera. So you've got this rich vein to tap, but even better, you're not even obliged to make sense of it all. There's no, there's no homogenous history much of which is forgotten anyway. Instead, you can plausibly have pockets of life clinging to old customs, old technology and so on, sometimes with full knowledge of their past, sometimes this knowledge has been distorted with retelling. And the OSR is full of this kind of stuff, as is Call of Cthulhu, actually. Um, and there are plenty of authors of post-apocalyptic fiction, ranging from likes of Vance, Walter and Miller, Gene Wolfe, to uh, Brandon Graham's Prophet comics, um, and the modern YA dystopian fiction like The Hunger Games and Divergent, this sort of all has this tantalising mystery of how the world came to be like this. So you have these big cities with lots of weird spaces to explore many layers deep, and there's always a sense that whilst this used to be a very civilised and safe place, it's no longer the case. Maybe the powers that be simply can't police such a vast area effectively, which leads to gangs, tribalism, violence over contested resources, and so on and so forth. Then there's the boundary. Vericonium makes reference to outside spaces like the threats from the north and the rust deserts and various other places. And this boundary exists to separate civilization from the outside world. Not that civilization is necessarily safe, but the threats it presents are human and factional or political rather than environmental. A long time ago I ran a game called Glory, set in one vast sprawling city at the end of an apocalyptic era where the jungle outside was um, physically reclaiming the last city. Everyone knew the world was doomed, and they had the resources to make everyone's lives comfortable in the coming apocalypse, so people tended to divide their time between two things. One, the expression of art, and two, the exploration of the space outside the city to reclaim the knowledge from the encroaching jungle. Uh, from former civilizations who lived outside the city that, that had been forgotten. There was a bit more to it. Uh, there were things like you know, five families in the tradition of Frank Herbert's Dune conducting a secret war, for example. But the boundaries were important, the boundary between the outside world and also the boundaries between spaces that divided up the city inside. And because it was ancient and layers deep with different cultures living on top of one another, there's a lot of potential for hidden pockets of weirdness, as I mentioned earlier. Now, Viriconium was a bit of an influence on Glory, but to tell the truth, the game Thief the Dark Project was more of an influence to my notions of fantasy cities. Thief is obviously influential to modern stealth games, where missions can be accomplished non-violently. But the gameplay is not all that Thief influenced, and in general... And certainly for the first two titles, the city was all there was. It was obviously built on top of other stuff like the Lost City, and that there were some pockets of wild space inside it, and places that had suffered some earlier unknown cataclysm. But unlike modern open-world games, where you, know, you can travel from zone to zone in a single map, 
The original thief just chucked everything in there and made no attempt to really explain the spatial relationship of things to other things. And I don't know if this is the case of a fruitful void, but it was kind of a case of, whilst there are spaces between things and the boundary of the world isn't defined, then the city feels like it's everything. And it's only when you start to make the city into one single contiguous map that you start to constrain the city map and that naturally leads to people looking outside instead of inward. So in summary, for fantasy city creation, you want layer upon layer of past culture. You want to observe the boundaries. They're absolutely critical. And finally, contiguous 3D space is overrated, quite frankly. I've talked for long enough about the themes. I'm going to move on to the role-playing bit now. So the first bit I want to talk about in the role-playing bit is um, it's basically about the OSR and its literary roots, or its perceived literary roots. Now, reading Vericonian this time around, I concluded that it's not only much closer to the kind of fantasy I care for, it's also it's also got a lot more in common with the OSR stuff I, I care for. You know, things like um, Deep Carbon Observatory comes to mind, uh, Troika, Yun Suin, and a few others. You know, partly it's the it's the slightly apocalyptic and decaying nature of these settings and the sense of the full weight of time, the layering of cultures. Now, some of the Appendix N stuff, that's the final the final uh, appendix in the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide of AD&D. Some of this stuff does this really well. You know, Howard, uh, Robert E. Howard does the crumbling empires of the Hyboran Age and, and Lieber has... If I remember correctly, an underworld that you can reach just by riding a horse in one direction for long enough. I think that's right. I need to read those again. But anyway, um, Lieber's geography is a bit fuzzy, and that's that's kind of how I like it. But despite those commonalities, uh, I think you'll agree that Appendix N is dominated by American fantasy literature of a particular type. You know, the, the pulps and the weird tales. Um Whereas the British New Wave has a wholly different source and a different intent and culture that the authors are writing from. So it's increasingly weird to me to see the OSR exclusively hung on the Appendix N peg. So you, know, you like OSR, so you must like Conan. Now, I think the people who actually play are pretty clear on their genre sources, uh, the things they like, and they probably resent being pigeonholed like this. Um, they probably have pretty diverse and clear tastes. Uh, it's and it's really the external observers with second-hand experience of the OSR and second-hand experience of the literature who come to fairly, um, well, frankly reductive conclusions about what the OSR is. Now, some of the OSR games I admire the most are really clear on their literary influences. So uh, New Newport's Crips and Things is ostensibly swords and wizardry, but it's got Clark Ashton Smith as a primary influence. I've, in the past, bigged up Beyond the Wall by Flatland Games, which is, you know, as far away from Appendix N as you can get. It's mainly influenced by Earthsea and Prydain. I noticed there's a game called Tocundria by Scott Malthouse, which I believe is um, explicitly influenced by Lord Dunson's fiction. Um, King of Elfland's Daughter is the only one of those I've read, um, and I've not read that role-playing game, uh, but I can, I can see it working. So what we're seeing here is instead of taking the whole Appendix N or the whole um, basic D&D BX uh, bibliography, you may or may not be aware that um, not only did D&D have its Appendix N, but there was recommended reading for basic sets, the basic and expert set. That's the Moldfay version of D&D. And uh, it's much longer than Appendix N. Uh, I curated both appendices and one for RuneQuest in a blog post in um, in the past on the, on the site. Uh, and I'll link to those in the show notes. Um, but anyway, the basic point is what we're saying here is instead of taking the whole appendix and or the whole recommended reading, these game authors focus specifically on the feel of one or two authors and they, they say that you know, this is what represents our fantasy and this is what we're going for. And more importantly, it's kind of that they're making that decision at the genesis of the game to get a particular feel rather than slapping the appendix on at the end and saying well this kind of represents the kind of thing we're going for you know both are both are valid um but i applaud the first one to to actually be very clear about the literary sense that you want to achieve also 
let's be honest, Conan has baggage. And this is baggage that is is undeserved, I think, but it does get reinforced with every fantasy cover with a, a muscle-bound fighter stripped to the waist. So as we're talking about this subject, I want to talk about a couple of sources to check out. One of the best ones, in my view, isn't really an OSR game at all. It's Sorcerer and Sword by Ron Edwards. Uh, and this is the first supplement for Sorcerer. Now, I'm sure some listeners might be rolling their eyes at this point, but I'll say this. In the core book of Sorcerer, Edwards has a, a very specific point he's making about role-playing and how there's a better way than the mainstream, the mainstream being White Wolf at that time, I believe. Uh, so there's a lot of theory in in there that, that comes from his essays, which I, I think are still available on the Archive of the Forge. For every person who sort of thinks that's an interesting discussion, there's probably three or four others who just don't have the patience for it. But the thing about Sorcerer and Sword is that Edwards doesn't have to make these political points in his supplement because he's already made them in the core book. So instead, this supplement uh, is has this really sharp, uncompromising focus on a particular genre of literature and a very clear statement of intent. You know, he, he wants to be faithful to a particular sword and sorcery. Uh, that, that, um, that term, by the way, I believe was coined by Fritz Lieber, uh, after Michael Moorcock said, well, I want you to explain as a, a capsule phrase what the genre of fiction you're writing in, and Lieber said, oh, swords and sor- so it's sword and sorcery, which has stuck. And, um, and so Edward says, oh, I want to, is effectively saying, I want to run sword and sorcery, I don't want to meander into adjacent genres. So he, he does actually name-check Earthsea, for example, and says, Earthsea's great, nothing wrong with Earthsea, but it's not what this is. And, you know, I applaud that for one thing. Um, so the supplement has a couple of really great opening chapters and it starts with a list of what sword and sorcery isn't. I'll read the quote here, right from the very first chapter. What is heroic fantasy, sword and sorcery, etc.? Best to start by explaining what it is not. It is not, one, what book publishers today call fantasy, which usually includes an a priori, carefully detailed, mapped and ethnographically structured made-up world, a variety of non-human picaresque races with well-defined associative philosophies and societies, uh, and a protagonist whose story includes self-help, self-discovery, and romantic development. Two, it is not what book publishers and straight-to-video call sword and sorcery, which usually includes a grunting, touchy dolt of a protagonist with gymnasium musculature, incredibly stupid sorcerers whose plans make no sense and whose magic bluntly doesn't work, fetishistic attention to macho posturing, the approval of other guys, and ownership of a sword, and models looking bored and uncomfortable in their costumes. Three, it is not, what you find in the majority of so-called fantasy role-playing games. A feverish concern with killing monsters and surviving momentary perils, mechanical possessions-based competence, that is, where being better depends on having more stuff, and long lists of highly specific spells, essentially a technology called magic. What is heroic fantasy then? It is action-adventure all right, but stuff chock full with horror, surrealism, and phantasmagoria, somewhere, somewhen, with a hero who makes no apologies and dominates the imagination, whose exploits demand a setting overflowing with imagery. Stories of Elric, Conan, Fafard and the Grey Mouser, and many others generated the wonderful worlds of their heroes over time, with the concern of the moment being the intense rush of a great character in a great story. And in the second chapter, this is followed by a pretty good bibliography, which starts with the pulp eras of the 30s to the 50s, then the fans, uh, as Edwards terms it, of the 60s and 70s, and finally the later imitators, of whom actually good examples are few and far between. And a lot of the names you'd recognise from Appendix N are there. So Howard, Moorcock, C.L. Moore, Gardner Fox, amongst others. Uh, it's almost as if he's doing for D&D what Sorcerer does for World of Darkness. So in summary, there's a lot to recommend in Sorcerer of Sword. And not least because it's spawned or, or is companion to the wonderful Dictionary of Mew by Judd Carman, which... I managed to snag a copy of it at a convention a couple of years ago, and if you can find it, it's fantastic. I think Carmen might be being pressured into re-releasing it. Who knows? Now, a couple of other noteworthy places where Appendix N is discussed. Um, the Plot Points podcast, episode 136, features the Appendix N panel from GaryCon 2019. 
uh, where they say a lot of interesting and considered things about um, how well D&D delivers the Appendix N experience. There's a couple of notable comments. Um, one is they mention the fetishization of Appendix N, which is actually the title I used for my notes in this section. Um, and another thing is they talk about how well D&D delivers on being Conan or Elric, which is the implied aspiration. Uh, and then they get into this by talking about the legends that spring up at the table about one's character, which is a really excellent point, because out of the box, D&D doesn't deliver this Conan or Elric-like experience at all, because first level characters are incompetent and they die easily. Now, I think there might be a case for saying that rogues work, like, like Fafarid and Grey Mouser, they're easier to emulate, but champions like Conan and Elric, no, not so much. More importantly, though, uh, there's not a lot of investment in the first level characters because, you know, they're basically descended from pawns in skirmish wargaming. So again, all of the legend and the investment comes from the role-playing bit at the table and often built up over years. It's not the same just to jump straight into a ninth level character. And that's kind of as it should be if you, you invest the time and you, you invest in the legends of these characters. Now, it might be a problem because we have video game expectations of high drama and action from a standing start, and I think modern iterations of, of D&D have made new characters more survivable, certainly, and competent to meet those expectations. And maybe that's where some of the incredulity of Pathfinder and D&D 3rd Edition players comes from. You know, why would you want to play a game where you start out utterly crippled and unsuited for the task at hand? But of course... The counterpoint is that these shortcomings in OSR games are addressed by the way you play at the table, uh, which is, see, the earlier point about how legends are built up at the table. It's part and parcel of the same beast. It's all about the experience you have with the people you play with. I should mention uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics as well, which is explicitly an Appendix N-inspired title, uh, as in, you know, I, I think it's, what would D&D be like if instead of being sanitised in the second and subsequent uh, editions, it cleaves a lot more closely to the source material? And I really think it does achieve that aim, uh, you know, the combination of the infamous funnel at zero level characters, the horrifying spell system, the use of luck... Um, and there's an essay in DCC's own Appendix N about Appendix N, and it's worth a read, definitely. Um, I've also got Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, which I don't think it has a bibliography, but it's so obviously inspired by the pulps and the Hyborian Age that it's, it's worth a mention. Great big, thick second edition book with, I think it's got two ribbons in it, it's pretty awesome. So those are the few things to look into, and aside from the literature itself, of which in Appendix N, my absolute favourite is C.L. Moore's Jurella Drury. Uh, which I've actually covered in a previous episode, so I might link to that. But that said, I think we need some distance from Appendix N right now, in the OSR. Um, these are the bulk of the mainstream examples I can see for fantasy gaming. First, you have this sort of sanitised, sub-Tolkien, pastoral world, very literally mapped out, in a lot of cases analogous to our real world, races, cultures and locations. This is the lowest common denominator of fantasy and of D&D and a lot of other fantasy games. But as a response to that, you, know, you then get a more fundamentalist approach to the kinds of fiction, going back to the trinity of Howard, Lovecraft and Clark, Ashton Smith, with high adventure and high danger and disposability of life, as, as well as weird and inexplicable magic and alien races. It's a bit more nuanced than that. There's plenty of examples of the first that don't suck. Um, RuneQuest... Dragon Warriors, um, they do still suffer from Harrison's great clomping foot of nerdism, uh, you know, the urge to externalise and literise everything and cement it into game history and geography. Um, but what I'm proposing is instead of going to the American pulps as the fundamental building blocks of this fantasy, I propose something rooted in the British New Wave, which, you know, you know, it was aware of its own history, but it has certain attributes you don't find in the American pulp literature. So the, for the primary influence, I would choose Harrison, naturally, J.G. Ballard and Christopher Priest. Um, which, you might think that's an odd trinity to choose. Harrison is the only even remotely fantasy author there. They are doing the sort of phantasmagoric fiction, psychedelic almost. Um, Moorcock's in there somewhere. 
I'm wary of, of saying that he's a primary source for, you know, the inevitable, oh, you know, like Elric. It's not exactly Morcock's fault, but the Young Kingdoms has now been thoroughly mapped and has the same problem with nerds, quite frankly. Now, Edwards notes generations that follow the initial pops, so I'm considering authors that follow on from these this group of, of new wave authors. So, a few names out there. Clive Barker, Clive Barker's fantasy specifically, so Weave World, um, Great and Secret Show, Imagica. Grant Morrison, um, Zenith to a certain extent, The Invisibles, uh, The Filth. Brian Talbot, his, um, his uh, Luther Arkwright and, and Heart of Empire, uh, which itself has shades of Jerry Cornelius, obviously. Uh, China Mayville, and we'll talk about China Mayville later with more talking about cities because that's kind of his stock in trade. And Jonathan Carroll, uh, and I'm I'm kind of inclined to compare some of Carroll's works with Harrison's Course of the Heart and other more occult primary world fantasy fiction. So that's my list. What characterises it? Well, to me, it's the layering of meaning and culture and the weight of a magical world existing alongside the real one. But it's also the idea of people and places as constants in the stories, but otherwise without any definite fixture in the world. They're not obliged to be somewhere in a particular time and place. Um, and at the same time, a weight of history and civilization that is almost impossible to comprehend as a whole and is crucially collapsing in on itself. Lastly, in the role-playing bit, I want to talk about a couple of tools because they are wonderful. Um, the first one is Corpathium. Uh, this is a, a role-playing game setting that can be found on lastgaspgrimoire.com site. And uh, Vericonium's direct influence is uh, stated by the author. And it's just this really excellent on-the-table tool. It features a, a fluid map generated by rolling several polyhedral dice, like the original seven plus a bunch of d20s. And what that gives you is, on the table, um, all the, the different dice, their vertices will point to each other. And this gives you a kind of um, instant topological map. And there are a number of constant locations described. For example, um, the fog walk, which is always the die nearest the bottom. Uh, and then... The other D20 rolls give you uh, the random boroughs of the city in this iteration that are expressed by the other dice. So, um, and also because you've you've got this sort of top to bottom shape, you can express a high and a low city if you wanted, I suppose. This tool works really well, um, I think, probably when the players have a good sense of the overall city and the various locations. So from session to session, some city features will blink in and out of existence and you know, pop up in unexpected places. The best thing about the method, though, is, is the on-the-table representation of the city, which really lets the players know that these things are shifting around. So I suppose if you want to play a game in a fog-shrouded city where the, the pathways to, to different places keep changing, this would work really well. So the other tool uh, I'm going to talk about is one of my own. I'm going to blow my own trumpet for a bit, as is my wont. Years ago, I had this idea for a city building tool using index cards. So the idea was you, you use the cards to focus on the game spaces that matter and otherwise ignore everything else. You, you organize the locations into stacks of districts. You tag at the district or location level with attributes like this district is high up or underground or there are pickpockets here or it smells of fish. You know, this could be just cosmetic things, but it could also be functional, you know, close in. Um, means that everywhere is close and this will affect the kinds of fighting and weapons that you can do for example then what you do is you link the districts together to make out your city which you represent topologically and after the initial idea i started to think about the people inside and the politics that dictated their lives so there are basically three tiers at the very top you have kings and queens um, kings have a connection to divinity and represent the spirit of the city and the queens rule with authority uh, in the middle you have bishops who control territory, and rooks, who police territory, and they have the Queen's warrant. And then at the individual level, you've got knights and pawns. Um, I should stress that like, kings and queens aren't necessarily royalty. You know, The king could be a computer at the heart of the city, uh, like um, Arthur C. Clarke's The City and the Stars. I, I think that's a good example. The queen could be a, you know, a conspiracy of politicians and business persons and, and so on and so forth. 
Uh, crucially, knights are characterised by ambition and autonomy. So, so these are the PCs, and, and the pawns represent individuals in a community. Um, now, you know, these all these characters can change roles. So you could have your knight becoming a bishop or even a king. Um, once they stop being a knight in your living city, they also stop being a PC, and instead they become part of the establishment. And so there's this idea that people could rise and fall. Um, a bishop could become a knight by losing territory uh, and gaining a thirst for revenge. Um, a pawn could lose their community and become a knight um, by some some tragedy or voluntary uh, or voluntarily leaving because they have wanderlust. Um, queen could lose their authority. And of course, there are some people who want to be king. Uh, and so a bishop or a rook could usurp the king. And when this happens, the whole spiritual character of the city should change. And then there's a final component to help design multiple cities, and that's by asking what a person would see of the city on a walk from outside through the main gates, the streets, and finally to the very heart of the city itself. I'm mostly thinking about this as a, a layer to stick on top of a fantasy game. Uh, for example, my White Hack and Stormbringer mashup called Stormhack uh, is the first choice, but in any case, um, the PDF in its current state is is available freely, uh, and I'll put a link in the show notes. If you're interested in this, let me know what you think. And uh, please have a look at Corpathium again, because it's really, really good. And that's about it for this episode. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please like, share and subscribe. Give us a review on iTunes or otherwise spread the word. We're on Twitter and Facebook as well. All music in this podcast is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at chriszabriskie.com. <laughs>